Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. Uh, this evening, as was already said, will be the last section. And what I'm going to attempt to cover tonight is, on your first page of the handout, is the New Covenant, which is the final covenant, that obviously, that we'll cover. And then quickly after that, I want to try and explore why this is important concerning the nature of the church and even towards the end of the first page that you've got. I do want to explore why this understanding is important, especially as we go into Hebrews, because there's some places in Hebrews that can be very confusing if, you, if, you've, if you're looking at things from a different hermeneutic, from a hermeneutic, of outs, a hermeneutic outside of the covenants, I guess would be the best way to say that. But I want to look at a couple of texts, and they're listed there in the first pages you have. Um, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33, Isaiah 42, and then Hebrews 8. And this will kind of lay the basis for the new covenant. So Jeremiah 31 is where we'll start. And verse number 31. Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. So I, Jeremiah says, it's not the same kind of it's not the same covenant that I made with Moses. The problem with that one is they broke it, and we looked at some of that the other week. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if you'll turn a few pages over to chapter number 33, we're going to look at verse 14 through verse 26. And it's a similar, a similar layout as what we just read. Or, I'm sorry, that was chapter number 33, wasn't it? No, that was 31. 31. Okay. Like I said, y'all bear with me just a little bit. <laughs> Chapter number 33, verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name wherein she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. For the Lord saith, David shall never want a man to sit upon his throne of the house of Israel, neither shall the priest of Levi want a man before me to offer burnt sacrifices and to kindle me offerings and to do sacrifice continually. 
And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that, sh and that there shall be no day and no night in their seasons, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen, he hath even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, and they shall no more they shall be no more a nation before them. Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant be not with the day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servants, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. And that was a more lengthy passage of Scripture, but we're going to get into why that's important. And odds are, most everybody here has probably figured out why those verses are important already. So Isaiah chapter number 42 and verse number 6. The Bible says, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness and will take hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people. For a light of the Gentiles. Now, if you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter number 8, we're going to find the author of Hebrews quoting some of these texts and expounding on how they come into play, in, in essence, how they're being fulfilled. And, and again, this will point out one of the reasons why all of this was important, especially in light of our going into the book of Hebrews. Chapter number 8, we'll read verse number 6 through verse number 13. The Bible says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And even the confession spoke about that tonight. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Verse number 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put and put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, for the least from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made first old. Now that which 
decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So we did read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture there in Jeremiah. And then we referenced those passages again to Jeremiah 33, Isaiah 42, and Hebrews 8. And they're basically all saying the same thing. Hebrews is referencing back, but both Isaiah and Jeremiah were both referencing forward to a covenant that was being made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then Isaiah tells us that it's even with the house of the Gentiles. So we have this new covenant that's supposed to come into play. And even in Jeremiah, we read that God said, do you want to know how sure this covenant is? He said, he said they broke the old covenant, but let me, t- let me tell you how sure this new covenant is. If you can make the sun stop coming up and the sun stop going down, and you can make the season stop, and you can make everything stop the way that it's always been, then maybe I'll break the covenant that I'm making with you now. So best I can tell, the sun has come up and went down. The seasons have continued on since the time that that was written. It has in my lifetime. And part of all that happening, we can see that God has kept his promise. God told Jeremiah, he said, that's, that's how sure this new covenant will be. And even earlier in that text we read, he said it was a fulfillment to the house of David so that someone would always reign. He said it was a fulfillment to the house of the Levites so there would always be a priest. And what we will continue to see in the book of Hebrews is Jesus is a better priest and he's a better king. Jesus is the fulfillment of that new covenant. That's what the gospels are about. In reality, if we were going to be true to the way that the scriptures are laid out, we could probably be okay if we removed the page that says the New Testament that begins at Matthew and we moved it over to the end of the book of John where Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant because that's really when the new covenant started. We see the gospels coming in and proclaim this coming of the new covenant. And even Peter in the book of Acts, he references back to Joel and he said, this is what happened. This prophecy is what happened. So the old covenant that was referenced here, and we saw that multiple times because he mentions the covenant that he made when he led them by the hand out of Egypt. The old covenant referenced here is the covenant of Moses that was given. The covenant that said, here's how I want you to dress. Here's how I want you to look. Here's where I want you to go. Here's what I want you to touch. Here's what I don't want you to touch. Here's what I want you to sacrifice. Here's the way I want you to sacrifice those things. Here's the day that I want you to rest. And if you break any of these things, it's a good possibility that you're going to be put to death. That was the Mosaic covenant that was given. But that was the old covenant that was referenced. So what was wrong with that old covenant? We read that over in the book of Jeremiah. They broke it over and over and over and over. There was no way for us to fulfill that old covenant. We couldn't do all those things. And as we looked at last week and the week before, the reason that we were, or one of the reasons that we were given the law is to prove that we could not do it. It was a call to the Jews again and again. And even that's what the sacrifices were. If there had been no need if there had been no need for them to have kept the law, if there was, if there was no, no possibility of them breaking the law, then there wouldn't have been sacrifices needed to atone for the broken law. That was what was wrong with it. They couldn't keep it. The new covenant, though, is not merely a refurbished covenant, and it's not a new administration of a same covenant. It's a different covenant. It has different substance. 
There's, there's difference in what it is. And again, the book of Hebrews will tell us that this new covenant is the substance of the shadows of the old covenant. So we see all these types and pictures of the old covenant that point us to the actual substance in this new covenant. Just like a shadow of a cake will do nobody no good, the shadow of a steak will do nobody any good to try and fulfill any hunger that they may have. But the substance of the cake or the substance of the steak can do us good. We can put it in our mouth. We can taste it. We can, we can actually be a part of it instead of just seeing the shadow. And that's part of what we see in the new covenant. It's a new substance. So you look over to the book of Hebrews, and you can write these down if you want. I put spaces there, but you don't have to, obviously. The new parts of the new covenant that we are given in the book of Hebrews and even in the book of Jeremiah is that God in this new covenant will write the law in their hearts. There's no need for this law to be written anywhere else anymore because he's going to write it in their hearts. And this isn't saying that he's going to write it in the hearts of every single person throughout the whole world. He's going to write it into the hearts of his people. What did he give the Israelites, his people? What did he give them when they came out of Egypt? He wrote it on tablets of stone. He wrote something specific, and they carried it with them. They had it written down so that they could reference back to it. If somebody came and began to live with these Israelites, they had to learn this covenant. They had to learn, thus saith the Lord. And there were even times throughout the history of the old covenant where they would find pieces of the law that were basically hidden in the temple. And he came, he would, the king came out and he read all the law and the people would weep because they said, we can't do this. So they would bring it back out because they would forget it themselves. And not just they would forget themselves, but anybody who came in and dwelt among them had no understanding or recollection of what they did and why they did it. But the author of Hebrews tells us, based on the covenant that was given to Jeremiah or the promise of the covenant, is that the law would be written upon the hearts of this new people, this, this group of people of God. When we are saved... When we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God indwells us. The author of Romans tells us that we become new creatures. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We don't have to go around and tell each other how we are having to live, how we are supposed to love, because the Spirit of God writes that on our hearts. Not to say we don't get instruction from the Scriptures for specific things, and not to say we don't mess up in specific things, but we don't have to go around when somebody comes into the church and they believe on Christ to say, look, this is how you do this, and this is how you do this, and this is how you do that, because the Spirit begins to bear in them the more they see the gospel, the more they see the message of Christ, the Spirit begins to bear in them that love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, all those things that are opposite to our nature, the Spirit begins to bear those things because that's the law that's written upon our heart. Not only that, but he says that he will be their God. And in this, we see not necessarily a group of people who are coming and saying, we're going to live like this. We will do everything that you said, but we see God coming and taking hold of a people. He doesn't say, here's how I want you to live. And if you live this way, you can be my people. He says, believe in me and you will be my people. He doesn't put a condition upon us being the people of God. He said, I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
There's no conditional. And that's where the old covenant was unable to carry the weight of that. And then lastly, we can see, and there's other things that can be referenced, but as far as tonight, lastly, we can see that he said he will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. He would remember no more. And that was part where the old covenant only atoned for sin. It just pushed it back again and again and again. It covered it up, but it was still there. But what God says here is that he will display his mercy and he will remember sins no more. They're going to be completely taken away. In a sense, and this is something that we had talked about after church this morning, the author of Hebrews, actually, I'm going to hold on to that. We'll get to that here toward the bottom of the page. But remember, remember, I was going to say something. All right. So the law is as merely an external revelation has no power to bring obedience. And we, we covered some of that. So the law by itself has no power to bring. And that's even, even the United States. We can't regulate the human heart. We can punish wrongdoing, but we can't say, okay, this is the law. And that automatically changes everybody's hearts. In the same way, the law of the Old Covenant did that. It didn't regulate the heart, but God says he will write upon the heart. He will regulate the heart. The New Covenant does not make God's law irrelevant. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. And Jesus says that. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Now, we do make the distinction that there are specific portions of the law that pointed to Christ and were specific to the children of Israel, but it is still wrong to murder. It is still wrong to lie. It is still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to do all those things, but Jesus came and he fulfilled all of it. And what did he say in his fulfilling of all of it? It could all be displayed in loving God and loving others. That's what he does in our heart. When we believe him, it produces love for God and produces love for others without us having to try and exercise all of that out, to try and regulate all of it through. Number three down here under C. In the covenant, God was a God to unbelieving Israel. In the covenant, God was a covenant. God was a God to unbelieving Israel only in the sense of fulfilling physical promises of land and offspring. But in the new covenant, we know God. And again, that that is the distinction between the old and the new. If you were part of the old covenant, if you were a Jewish person, you were able to receive the benefits of the old covenant promises because you were given a land and you were given an offspring. But in the new covenant, we are given God. He becomes our portion. The basis of these other blessings is the forgiveness of sin. And again, that's where all this kind of comes back in together. The reason that we can live with the law written on our hearts and the reason that we can be assured that he is our God is because he says that he has forgiven our sins and remembered no more our iniquities. So how did God administer his grace to old covenant believers? He did that in the same way that he administers it to new covenant believers. And again, I'm going to get into that here toward, towards the end of this, this first page. Um, I'm trying not to grab that and bring it up. But the arrival of the new covenant has important implications. Number one, it defines the nature of the church. Number two, it defines the character of our worship and, ex- and explains issues that seem to come up in the New Testament. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and run this, 
this rabbit that seemingly keeps running around. But the book of Hebrews, where it says that the God administering grace to the old covenant believers, and even in the sense that it's not a refurbished covenant, but it's a new covenant. The book of Hebrews speaks in chapter number 6 and in chapter number 10 about people who, if they go a different direction, can never come back. He says, specifically the author of Hebrews says, I believe it's in chapter number 6, that there remains no more sacrifice for sin. He says there's been those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts, and if they go back, there's then no more sacrifice for sin. And there has been a lot of people who have struggled with texts like that, saying that if we say we believe and then we don't believe, then that means we can never believe again. Or if we say that we are saved and then we say that we're not saved, then there's no more sacrifice left. We can only do this once. Or some have even said that it's possible to lose one's salvation because if you somehow lose the faith, you can't get the faith back. But understanding these, this new and old covenant reality can help us even understand some of these texts like this in the book of Hebrews. So the Old Testament believers, to, to try and put this analogy out, the Old Testament believers were saved on the basis of credit, whereas the New Testament believers were saved on the basis of debit. If I go run, if I go to the store and I go to purchase something and I run a credit card, it means I don't have this money yet, but I will have it at some point and I will pay the credit card off. But if I go to the store and I purchase something with my debit card, it means this money is in my account right now, and that is what's going to pay for this right now. And in a sense, that's how, that's how people were saved in the Old Covenant. The book of Hebrews chapter number 10 and chapter number 11, we, we will end up seeing that, that it was belief in the promise that brought people into this Old Covenant portion of grace. This is how, how they came to know God was through promise in the covenant, promise in what God had said. And again, we even saw that throughout some of the other covenants that we looked at because Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And even through the book of Hebrews, you see all of these people who believe. It says that Enoch believed. It says that Abraham believed. It says that Noah believed. It was the belief that gave them the promise, not just their circumcising themselves or keeping the law of Moses. But the book of Hebrews, when it says that there remains no more sacrifice for sin, in essence what he's saying is you have been given the payment. The promise has come. You have the debit card now. He said there's no more sacrifice. There's, no, there's nothing. In a sense, what Christ has done is at the cross, he paid off the credit card that had all of the sins of those Old Testament saints on it, and he cut their credit card up, and there's no more money left on it. The balance now is zero. You go and try and swipe the credit card, there's nothing there. There's no more payment for sin yeah, right. under that old covenant because we have the full payment of the cross. And all we do now is look back to that paid in full covenant. And that's what the author of Hebrews was saying. He said you can't take what you have now as, as the debit card and try and swipe a credit card because there's nothing left there. It's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that you can throw it away and not be able to come back. What he's saying is there's nothing left in that old covenant. 
And that's the way that this understanding of the new and the old covenant helps us understand texts in scripture. I'd even written down here the text in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, where he says, Come out from among them, be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will be I will be your God. He says that, but what Paul is saying there is he is quoting a text in Isaiah, and Isaiah is speaking to people coming out of, out of Babylonian worship. He's speaking to people who were caught up with idols. Isaiah was saying, leave the idols in Babylon and come back to God. Leave everything there. When you come back to Jerusalem, come back to the God that is yours. Paul was dealing with idol worship there in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. And I can get into some of the other stuff later if anybody wants more information on that. But Paul was dealing with idol worship in that text. And what he's doing is he was quoting Isaiah and saying, even, even in the old covenant, God said, don't try and mix my, my worship with the worship of idols. Don't try and mix the two. Come out and be separate. But Paul adds something in Roman or in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. He adds something that's not in Isaiah. He says, I will be a father unto you and I will dwell with you. These two things weren't in Isaiah, but that was the new covenant aspect of even this old covenant command. So he brings the old covenant. He said it was even like this here. But now God has said, don't come out and be part of me. He said, he's, now he said, look, I'm your father and I dwell with you. So don't bring all the idols into my house. I, I have become a father to you now. You dwell with me. So there's no need to grab hold on to all this other stuff. There's no need to grab hold to these idols that can't talk and can't speak. Don't go into their house. There's nothing there for you. Come back home. In essence, is what God is saying to those who would go and worship idols. So there's multiple texts, especially when something's quoted from the Old Testament. Most of the time, they're taking the Old Covenant, and they're taking the New Covenant, and they're contrasting the differences, saying, don't go back to the Old, because that was who most of the New Testament is dealing with. We take application. We do. But when Paul was writing, he was writing to people who were wanting to go back and grab parts of the Old Law. They wanted to go back, and even the book of Hebrews, it was people who were going back to the Old Testament and grabbing stuff there because they didn't have the full New Testament. That's the reason they were given apostles and preachers so that they could proclaim the gospel. Again, so hopefully that made sense. So real quick, we'll run over to the second page, and we'll cover some of the nature of the church. So how does this new covenant change the nature of the church? Number one, why is it important to understand the nature of the church? And here's the reason. Because the church isn't set up the same way that Israel was set up. In Israel, you had people who were part of the Jewish community that were not believers. That's the reason you had kings who would come in and would not believe and would not do what their fathers had done. David believed. He did specific things. But then you had people come in after him, kings who came in after him that didn't believe and didn't do those things. And that was the, the issue that continuously happened in Israel. Even people who were in the religious community would do things that were, not, that were contrary to the belief of God. That's the reason that again and again God pours out judgment because part of this community was built up with unbelieving Jewish people. Because that's how he chose to bring forth the scriptures. That's how he chose to bring forth his son. But in the new covenant, the church is only made up of believers. 
That's the difference. And even in the book of Romans, we saw through chapter 4 and again in chapters 9 and 10, it's always been the believing people. That's the reason, again, Paul says in chapter 4, he said, I'm going to tell you who the true Jew is. It's the one that believes like Abraham believed. The author of Hebrews basically says the same thing. It's belief that makes you a son of Abraham, not physical birth. And that's where the church is different because it's belief that makes us part of the church. And some can, they may, some may very well come and they may sit among an assembly of believers, but they are never part of the universal church because they're not true believers. So that's one way why it's, one reason why it's important to understand the nature and the composition of the church, that it's only people who believe that comprise of the church itself. The new covenant is what defines the nature of the church. The new covenant creates believers, people who are justified and regenerated. So again, the new covenant is what creates the believer. It's not just physical birth. It's Christ's work because he has now written his law upon our hearts. When the Spirit comes in and changes us, we're made new creatures. We're justified, we're regenerated, And we're made part of the church. According to the persuasive teaching of the Old New Testament, those who are united in Christ and reconciled to God are united to Christ's people and reconciled to them. And this is lived out in the life and connection with an organized local church. And there are some specific places in Ephesians chapter 2 that we can cover that, but I'm going to skip over that for right now. In essence, the difference is where then the Jewish people stayed among each other. They were called to, to stay part of each other for various reasons. In the new, under the new covenant, though, those who believe in Christ and are reconciled to him, they seek out those who are also reconciled to them. So instead of a group of people in Israel who are born and begin to slowly spread out, you find God under the new covenant calling people from all over the place and these people drawing in to each other. That's the reason that in town like China Grove, there will be people who live in this area that assemble with different churches in this area because they have gotten together with a group of people whose focus and whose beliefs are closely aligned to theirs. Again, we're not, we, don't, we don't claim that somebody who is Presbyterian or Lutheran or whatever denomination they may be is inherently lost. We may have disagreements with we have, may have disagreements. We may even have disagreements with other Baptist churches, and we may have a different focus than they do, and a different focus than other Baptist churches. But it doesn't deny the fact that people who are regenerated by God, who are saved, come together in local assemblies because that's what God has said is going to happen. And we see this new covenant played out in that way. We can see God's writing on people's hearts. So that's what we ought to see. We ought to see the new covenant played out this way. And that's one of the reasons why when churches do covenant together, it's important that it be a regenerate church membership, a regenerate church assembly. So it's not that you're just calling everybody who wants to come in to just come for the sake of coming. It's not that we are having, I mean, Lord knows if you can look around tonight, you can tell that we've not got some huge crowd here because we're not implementing things to try and draw everybody in so everybody can just enjoy life together as part of this group. But what we attempt to do is to proclaim the gospel 
and to draw those who God has and will call to himself into assembly. They may assemble other places, and that's absolutely fine. But the nature of the church isn't calling the unbeliever into the church to try and make the unbeliever part of the benefits of the church, but it's calling those believers together so that the believers can then go outside of themselves and bear the fruit of enjoyment, so to speak, through their life versus trying to bring people in and force, fruit, force them into fruit where it's at. And hopefully that makes sense. And that's, in essence, what happened throughout the New Testament. You see in the book of Acts where they came together. They met from house to house, and they searched the Scriptures. That's what they did because you had these new groups of people who weren't all Jews. Some of them were Jews, but they all had a common belief, and they met together, and they searched the Scriptures, and they were called Christians because people looked over, and they said, well, these group of people who are hanging out together, they all are acting like Christ. The church is composed of those who make a credible profession of these realities that are written in Scripture, and they are called specific things. And I may have misworded that there. But if you read throughout the the New Testament, you don't see, after the book of Acts, you don't see even people called disciples. In the Old Testament, you see the children of Israel, and you may see the term Jew used in the Old Testament, but you see specific things that people are called. However, in the New Testament, we're identified in different ways than our, than our birth, and we're not identified in different ways even of whom we follow because we're called the chosen of God. We're called the children of God by faith. We're called the sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're called those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. We call, we're called those who, were, who Christ gave himself for. We're called the followers of the Lord, and we're called those who are being saved. So we see throughout the New Testament, we're called things that all connect us to this new covenant. It's not about us being born into something. It's about us believing something. And by that belief, we are shown who we are. Scripture acknowledges that the church as a visible organization, a body of Christ, will not line up perfectly. The fact that there are discrepancies between church members and converted people does not authorize us to admit the unconverted and exclude the converted. In essence, what, what that's saying is, in a sense, what I just said. We're, because we are part of a visible organization, it does not mean that we're all going to line up perfectly. And because we don't all line up perfectly, it does not, in that sense, it doesn't mean that we can bring unbelievers in and keep believers out. Because that's just not the nature of the church. And then number three, and we'll be done. Some churches and individuals do not practice membership in the local church, and this obscures the display of the new covenant. The new covenant makes sense of church membership. And again, that was something that I've added to the end of this because what we have done, in a sense, is we've entered the covenant of God. And that is the reason that the majority of churches have a type of church membership. It's not that you have to be part of a church in order to be able to be saved. It's not that you have to be a member of a church in order to even even to grow in the community of an assembly of, of gathered people. But the reason that Acts, and again, I added down here, think Acts 2. So what happened is in Acts 2, it says that Peter preached and there were 2,000 that were added to the church. So people looked from the outside and they said, well, these people are now 
doing something different. And from the inside, they said, okay, well, these people are believing and they're different. So they're added to the assembly that was there in Jerusalem. And the reason that this makes sense within the nature of the covenant is because God has covenanted with us, so we in turn covenant with one another. And even when we started, if everybody remembers, one of the, one of the things that we looked at that morning and we agreed upon that morning was a statement of faith and a church covenant. And if you were to go back and read through the church covenant, and since it's on our website, if anybody wants to do that, and I've got copies of it, not tonight, but it says we promise, we covenant to do this. We will do this. We will do this. We will do this. We will do this. It goes down through a list of about 10 or 12 things that says, hey, as a group of people, this is how we want to agree with each other. And in, in, in the same sense of, a, of someone when they're, when they're married. I mean, if, if I married my wife, and I did, I said, I will love you. I don't even remember all of what I said, but the gist of marriage is I love you, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're healthy or you're unhealthy, for long as we both shall live. That's, in essence, how it goes. So you're covenanting with each other. You're saying, it doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or if you're unhealthy. I'm committing myself to you, and you're committing yourself to me. In a sense, that's what we do as a church. We're saying it doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're not poor, if you're healthy, if you're not healthy, whatever it may be. There's a specific list of things that we have where we covenant with, with each other. Now, on, the, on the, the opposite side of that, unfortunately, there are times within a marriage where adultery happens or abuse or abandonment when that covenant is broken. Somebody, one or the other member, breaks the covenant and a divorce happens. And because of our sinfulness, that does happen even among believers because we're sinful people. We break even those covenants. And there are times when churches have issues even within themselves because members begin to break the covenant that they agreed upon together. They, they're, they're called to, to come together around the gospel. And again, different assemblies may have different things that they're coming around, different focuses that they have. But there are times when even churches that come together break the covenant with one another and things happen. But that's all a visible representation of things that really ought not be. But because of our sinfulness, it happens. All that being said, the nature of the universal church itself is all those who believe are now making up the kingdom of God. So to real quickly wrap up hopefully this whole thing, the way that we can think about this in a sense, again, we've, we've, we've covered some of this, but the church does not come in and replace Israel. In a sense, what God has done throughout the whole of scriptures is he has been building a kingdom. He's been building a people for himself. If you were to drive by a building, there's a building that's being built not too far from where I work. And the construction crew has brought in scaffolding as the building has begun to get higher and higher. And in a sense, that's what the nation of Israel was, is it was the scaffolding of God in the Old Testament. It's how he began to build up what he was building. But in a different way than the scaffolding, not too far from where I work, because whenever they get done, they're going to take the scaffolding down and they'll go home. That's not what God did. The scaffolding became part of the building. If you look over in the book of Corinthians, Paul says that the church 
is being built. And we, we think of the foundation of the church being Christ. But he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ. What Paul paints a picture of is there is this group of this line of people in the Old Testament, this line of people in the New Testament that both meet in Christ. The building is just, it's, it's one group. And we even saw this morning, he said, he said he's going to make all these sheep of one fold. That's what God has been building. And that's the reason that we look at these covenants and we, we thank God that we can be part of the new covenant that he has given us. But we're not casting out all of what God has already said. We're not even casting out people in the Old Testament saying, well, they, they were under this covenant or they were under that covenant. We're seeing that it's all been built together. We're seeing that God has put everything together and is building one building, one kingdom, one people of God. And when we grab hold of that, the text again in the New Testament begin to make sense. We begin to not try to designate this people over here and that people over there, but we see that it's all brought into one. And even in the Old Testament, when we read through the promises of the Old Testament, we can see all the promises of the Old Testament that were given to all of this group of people. Again, if we want to use the analogy of a building, we have this line of people, this line, this foundation of people leading this direction, and all these promises are given to these people. Where does that line meet? It meets in Christ. So we would not do any damage to the Scripture by looking at all the promises that are given in the Old Testament and finding the fulfillment of those promises in Christ. And then what does Christ do? He takes those promises within himself and he spreads it out. So all the promises are going to the same group of people. They're all meeting in Christ and it's all flowing out of him. And when we get a hold of, we can grasp these covenants, we can understand what is being done, what is being said, then the Old Testament begins to make sense and the New Testament begins to make sense. And they don't contradict each other and they don't go against each other, but they sit there and they benefit and they help us understand what God's ultimate plan has always been. It's to build a building unto himself. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. He said that God is building. He even says, he even says you can see this happening locally. He said, I lay the foundation with this Christ, but God is the master builder. Peter says that we are lively stones that have been fit together. So God is doing everything behind the scenes. We may not see it all. We may not understand it all. But God is putting together his people. That's what he's always been doing. God's always been bringing people in from other places. We see that happen in little, little areas in the Old Testament that's recorded with Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and some of these other people that come in from other places. And in the New Testament, we see where God calls, he calls Cornelius and he calls other people in. And he starts to bring to fruition what he's always been doing. And that's what we're going to see at the end of the age. The book of Revelation tells us that there are people of many tribes, many tongues, and many nations that are all gathered together around the throne. It's always been God's plan. So we'll end with that.